blow in her face and she'll follow you anywhere. You are destroying the Constitution of the United States. May God have mercy on your souls. Good day. Yes. We could be saved if we just elected the right white man to power. That's creepy, but that's in a different category of creepy. Zitzu, zitzu, zitzu. Gary Geigers. Of course he introduced zoning laws. Okay. You know what? Don't. Yeah. The less I have to do with that game, the better. Here's my favorite part of the defense. Clodius was probably fucking his sister. Jughead, not Jarhead. I have nothing against Marines. I want to make okay. that very clear. I'd be really interested to find out what fucking truth that woman was trying to get at. And like with most episodes, I can bring it back to wrestling. Oh. Right, well, he's got other people who work for him who also do things, and, and they can okay. mutate okay. Uh, okay. human size into smaller worlds, after all. Fuck you. I still don't give a shit about getting fake property in a fantasy game. contractual unemployment and um, as far as stuff I've got going on um, I had the opportunity uh, the other week to visit the home or one of the homes because it moved around a lot of Ulysses S. Grant uh, while my while we were visiting extended family back in Missouri hmm. uh, turns out that uh, you know Grant spent a, a significant portion of his time uh, in uh, in and around St. Louis. It was actually where he met his wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I found most interesting about visiting the site was that after his presidency, he and his wife returned to the home uh, that, that they had inherited from her father. Right. Um, and uh, uh, Mrs. Grant, uh, um, who, who they had just come back from Europe, and Mrs. Grant uh, insisted on repainting the house uh, as a as a show of their their new status, having returned to town mm-hmm. um, in a shade of green that was all the rage at the time. It's called Paris green, imported from Paris, France. And it to modern eyes, it is no shit the ugliest color you could consider painting a house, like. It, it is it is this god awful like chartreuse green like like lime doesn't quite get you there in terms of the shade I, I don't know really how to describe it but it was it was remarkable to think that like back in that time period that was a sign of status and so it looked good whereas to us that's fugly. Like, 
so you know it was it was it was a reminder of of you know how how those things affect aesthetics and 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 you know how how the newness of something because that that pigment was a brand new thing mm-hmm. at the time and and just how that affects like you know 100 years from now 200 years from now people are going to look at you know the colors we choose to paint stuff and 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 the aesthetic that we have and they're going to be like oh my god that's mugly mm-hmm. you know but to us it's awesome so anyway just that's that's the realization that i made recently uh that i figured i'd share what are you up to and who the hell are you well i'm damien harmony i'm a u.s history and latin teacher up here in northern california uh and uh what was it oh i i recently um was at your house yes and uh you you have some strange people in your life because not a single one of them was on board with the idea of making your ceiling plaid. So I, I don't do know have to tell strange you, man. People you, in my life, I have I have at least one very so, strange person in yeah. my life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, hey, um, your kids getting to the age where you watch movies with them yet? Right. Oh yeah. Cool. Um, there's a lot of stuff. He's, he's still easily spooked. Okay. Um, so like Pixar movies, Mm -hmm. there's almost inevitably some point where something scary happens and, and he, he kind of flips out, um, in brave, uh, the, the bear Mordu, uh, the gigantic evil black bear, um, scared the daylights out of him. And, um, Spoiler alert, we, we tried to watch um, Turning Red. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's red pandas. How could that possibly be scary? Well, you wind up finding out that the that the mother's red panda form is a kaiju-sized red panda. And when I say kaiju, I mean, you know, multiple stories tall. Sure, sure, yeah. And, and when she is transformed into that form she is really furious with the protagonist her daughter and so it is a ragingly angry kaiju sized you know tiny bear and i think the emotional loading of mother being that angry was also part of it but Mm -hmm. he, he started crying and we had to stop watching the movie so there yeah with limits there are there are films we do watch with him but yeah we're not we're not up to the kind of stuff that like i'd like to be watching yet but right right i remember uh the first time we all watched princess bride that was about seven years ago okay so my daughter was three going on four okay um or she just turned three Okay. Um, I remember, and, and and that worked. That was that was good. Um, and then I'm trying to think. I mean, four years old is when my son got to start seeing Star Wars. Okay. Um, and uh, I give you a hint here: don't watch Tombstone with your kids just because they know how to read. Turns out yeah. they should be a little older. Yeah. And I missed, I, 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 I screwed that one up because, I mean, there's a lot of gun violence in it. It's Tombstone. But um, I thought that because we'd watched so much Star Wars that there's blaster violence. Turns out 
there's a difference. Qualitatively, that's a different thing. I, yeah. Apparently didn't I did I missed that. So that was a screw up okay. on my part. Okay. Um we watched uh Jurassic Park recently. Um, and that went pretty well, although okay. we had to stop it right about the time that the uh velociraptors were opening the kitchen doors. Oh, it was just a little too freaky. Um, yeah, no, I, I then nine year old. Yeah, so. no, um, I'm pretty sure Robert would be totally on board mm-hmm. with with the early parts of that movie. Oh, absolutely. Like, like out the, of his mind. Brontosaurus. Yeah. I mean, frankly, everything until Nedry turns stuff off. Yeah, pretty much. Just like dream come true. Like, right. oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Transported. And uh, honestly, yeah. you could just show him those part, you know, the, you, those yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, totally, up to that yeah. and it would be, yeah. it would be fine. It'd be fine. So. Um, I don't know if I'm ready uh, to see uh, Jeff Goldblum shirtless again. There mm. was, there was, there was a little bit of. Uh, By curiosity. A little, little bit, little bit of, little bit of, you know, slightly traumatic, uncomfortable questions. I don't want to, I don't want to ask myself. See, whereas uh, I don't think that there. anybody has to be anything other than straight to enjoy Jeff Goldblum. Um, it's just a natural part of being human to find him that attractive. I really like. I will, he is. I will try to frame it that way. He is omnisexual. Time. You know. Okay. All right. So, okay. So, um, you but know yeah, what? in, in, in seriousness though, yeah. yeah, we, we haven't, we haven't started that one. And then there are certain movies that we watched before Robert came along, uh, mm-hmm. or was old enough to be watching with us, like just because he was an infant that, um, we're, we're just not watching again in this house. Okay. Um, he, he does get a kick out of Encanto. Like he loves Encanto. Sure. Um, but, uh, Coco, we're never allowed to watch again in this house because my wife was destroyed oh wow by the ending like okay. it, it wrecked her and okay. ugly crying sure this is a beautiful movie but i'm never allowed to watch it again like that okay. kind of thing okay oh so, yeah see my kids so, like they straight up like when we watch episode seven of star wars they will just reach their hand over and hold my hand when uh, Ben and his father meet on the catwalk because they know I'm going to cry. They just okay. know, yeah, like, well, forever. Because yeah, so. you're not made of stone. like. Right. But dude. every time. And they'll just reach yeah. their hand over. They're like, oh, this is the dad crying part. Okay. So, um, you know, in my rush to get kids cinematically uh, literate, yeah, there are inevitably movies that I never actually bought on DVD and I couldn't find on any streaming service. Okay. Until recently. Um, and by recently, I mean, just a few weeks ago, my kids had never seen the wizard of Oz. Okay. And it was cool. Cause we were watching it and my girlfriend came over and she watched it with us. Okay. And uh, she and I kind of started discussing as it was going on, much to the shushing of our kids, of my kids, <laughs> of, of um, like, wow, there's some really interesting stuff going on here. And I realized this is a whole podcast. So okay, tonight we're going to talk about The Wizard of Oz or L. Frank Baum is a satirist and a prophet. Okay. So. All right. In 1856, in upstate New York, Cynthia Ann and Benjamin Warm Baum 
welcomed their seventh child into the world. Now, since contraception back then wasn't readily available in any substantive way, he was the seventh of nine children, which, of course, made me wonder if the character from Voyager was somehow a nod to him. Okay. And I I went down several rabbit holes and could not find anything but seven of nine. Um, I found nothing in my research to say that it was done consciously, but I'm not an expert on either the real person or the fictional character to make such a claim. So if there are any friends of the show uh, who are experts on Voyager, feel free to, to, to weigh in. I'm going to leave that to any geek timers who know better than I about either. Okay. Anyway, this seventh of nine, of whom five survived to adulthood, uh, his name was Lyman Frank Baum. Okay, uh, I I yeah. <clears throat> I just I just have to interject. Nine children, mm-hmm. five of whom survived to adulthood. That was pretty good. That was pretty good, and yeah. I cannot imagine the weight of lifelong grief mm. that would be that would have to be. Well, okay, no. it was so normalized. Well, yes, it was normalized, but still. Like that was a know, much more constant companion. Like, I'm not saying it wasn't a cause for sadness, but there was already a get busy living. Well, kind of yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. yes, but like, okay. Anyway, I yeah, yeah. There there was there was a, a very significant conversation in a medieval studies course I took in college mm-hmm. um about there is this perception or there for, for a very long time was this perception amongst medievalists mm-hmm. that, you know, because we have all of these stories of, well, you know, a uh, child died because they fell into the fire right. in the middle of the house. Right. Or drowned um, in the street. Drowned. Yeah. You know, and, and all of these, all of these terrible ways that children died, there was this kind of undercurrent of, well, you know, they didn't they didn't feel the loss the way we do because it was just it was just so common mm-hmm. that like they didn't you know and 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 there was very significant pushback good that okay. i tend to buy into because we also see uh shrines and and you know religious places where you know it was very clear that people were leaving votive offerings and spending resources on praying for the souls of the children that they had lost that this this mm-hmm. wasn't like they you know this this idea that that people before our era didn't get as attached or they didn't feel the losses significantly like yes there was it was a more constant companion there was normalization of well you know this is what happens right and these are the ceremonies that you perform yeah and to i help you to, to help it. you cope. And mm-hmm. I think I, 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 I hesitate to, to make an assumption. I, I feel like it's like it's modernizing to, or, or it's, or it's a very modern lens that we assume that, well, you know, it was so normalized and like, you know, it was just, you know, get on and, and, and whatever like the assumption that there was not some weight of grief carried by everybody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And there, we're going to run into that uh, okay. down the line in this story. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I don't want to downplay the amount of grief that parents felt, okay. but more that they couldn't stick in it. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they coped well either, because we're like, oh, God, you know, they they, you know, they just had to go on and, and man, they sure beat the shit out of their kids. Uh, yeah. And it's like, well, you, you know, these things are tied together, you know, Trauma and response. It is. Yeah. 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 But but regardless, yeah, I, five yeah. of them made it. Um, and he liked to go by Frank. His family were wealthy. Um, his dad was successful at a number of different jobs. And they had an estate called the Rose Lawn. Um, Frank went off to a military academy at the age of 12. But after two years, he came back home because he was miserable. And his parents were like, yeah, you don't need to stay. Um, and they tutored him, him at home. Um, All right. When he was 16, maybe 17, his dad bought him a cheap printing press, which was to encourage Frank's love of writing. Uh, and pretty soon, Frank and his younger brother, Henry, were publishing the Rose Lawn Home Journal, uh, which right, pretty cool. By 17, he was publishing a pamphlet for for um, it's hard to say a pamphlet, a, hmm, a pamphlet for uh, philatelists. So if I don't say it properly, it's a very yeah, different kind yeah, of literature. Yeah. yeah. Um, philatelists are, of course, stamp collectors. Stamp collectors, yeah. Um, but this was called Bombs Complete Stamp Dealers Directory. Oh, wow. All right. So he was doing that. That's that's a thing that he was doing. You know, my, my kid, she's writing up different role-playing systems. He was publishing shit. Yeah. Um, now, when he was 20... Frank, in 1876, got into a weird craze that was sweeping the wealthy strata luxury. Uh, the, the, the wealthy strata is called luxury poultry. Okay. Yeah. All right. You, you can't leave that lying there. Luxury poultry. Yes. Yes. Fancy it's, chickens. Yes. Fancy chickens. Pet, pet, fancy chickens. Pet, fancy chickens. Like, All right. Yep. Okay. Yep. Big cock comparison. You know, yeah, oh, well, yeah. of course. I mean, yeah. come on, that's the point of 90% of it. It's actually not that different than the luxury mutton craze of the 1840s amongst landlords in Ireland, uh, which is what prompted a lot of them to kick poor families off yeah. their land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, Baum personally was in fact, uh, Baum, Baum, L. question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably go, I'm gonna probably end up going back and forth. Yeah, um, well, yeah. But he personally was infatuated with the Hamburg chicken, uh, which is also called the hamburger, which is really confusing because it's a chicken. Yeah. So um, I'm really yeah, into there, hamburgers. There some, oh, yeah. yeah. Beef yeah. is good. No, it's poultry. <laughs> it's, no, it's chicken, man. It's really weird. Okay. Um, this, of course, prompted another journal, uh, which started monthly in 1880. And it was a trade journal called the Poultry Record. And he also wrote his first book at age of 30 in 1886 called The Book of the Hamburgs, a brief treatise upon the mating, rearing, and management of the different varieties of Hamburgs. All right. So that's yet another person that by the age of 30 was far more successful than I. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, I, mm. I looked it up because it was bugging me and it is bomb. Bomb. Okay. Bomb. I will do my best. Correct me as it goes. Yeah. Um, it's wild. You know what? Uh, no noise for just a second. Bomb. That way I can just edit it in. It'll be there good. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> All right. L. Frank Bomb. Um, but it's wild to me that this guy had such money 
that this was his life. Yeah. I mean, there's, he had there's some significant money. privilege going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Not to be confused with his neighbor down the road who started a vocational trade school for waterfowl. No matter what his neighbors thought, he had duck you money. Nice. Thank you. Nice. But seriously, ducks I, and how yeah. to make them pay. <laughs> that. What did ducks do? <laughs> I was disappointed to find that this was a book about running a successful waterfowl business and not punishing ducks for what they know they did. <laughs> But seriously, I do think that this bucolic, luxurious, live your weird fucking dreams kind of life is something worth noting. Um, At no point in his life did he not have the memory of or the existence in presence of joy in his life. He seems to have been, frankly, quite fulfilled Hmm. by what he was doing. And he wanted for very little. And part of me really hates him for that. (laughs) Considering the time that we're talking about, this is the 1870s and 80s. But part of me really hopes that this is true for everyone soon. Like, yeah, how nice it must be to like make a stamp journal. Yeah. You know, Uh, now I know it won't be for everybody. We should all be so lucky as to write treatises on hamburgers. Um, Truly, I want my children to know the beauty that is luxury hamburgers that are chickens. I would like that. Wouldn't we all though? Yeah, true. I mean, like really? Yeah. Okay. Now, here's what's really fucking wild though, right? He was born four years and about 11 months prior to the Civil War, which means when he's turning seven, the draft riots are happening downstate in New York. Okay. So that means yeah. in upstate New York, the draft riots had to have been in some sort of discussions in the general zeitgeist. Now, he was only seven, and keeping kids from such a traumatic occurrence would be relatively easy. Um, though I was making Iran-Contra jokes when I was six and seven years old. But Yeah, but you grew up in an era where the mass media existed. That's in very a way, true. In a, yeah. Like, you know, you couldn't get away from it on TV. A and even if I could, I don't remember ever lo- watching the news. Like the first yeah. news I remember watching, quite frankly, was Tiananmen Square. And that's because okay. it broke into my cartoons. Yeah. But but that didn't mean that adults around me weren't talking weren't about talking about shit. it. Yeah. I think I'm going to I'm going to kind of kind of I don't know if go on a limb is the right word here, but I think there was a different outlook like based on everything anybody has, you know, especially from in, in the, in the upper, upper echelons of society, there was this view amongst folks who had that level of duck you money mm-hmm. that uh, childhood should be this kind of idyllic period of, of innocence. And, you know, it, it, it makes me think of um, the Roosevelt's. TR and Mm -hmm. his second wife Mm -hmm. and their attitude, the way everybody talked about their attitude toward their kids, which was pretty standard for the day. And what made them exceptional was the fact that, you know, it was Teddy Roosevelt and his wife. And so they had the money and the, and the connections and whatever else to, to do what everybody else wanted to do to like 11 Mm-hmm. in terms of creating an Edenic kind of kind of environment for their children. And I think during the Victorian era, 
right? Especially amongst the upper classes, I think it would have been a lot easier for a seven-year-old like Frank Baum to yeah. to be insulated from that. I don't, I don't, yeah. I think social mores would have been like, we're not going to talk about this in front of the kids. Yeah, I think there is that. You know, There's also you had this development of the idea of uh, like the cult of domesticity and this idea of separate yeah. spheres. Yeah, and yeah. so that would it, kids would get included in the mom sphere, not in the dad sphere. And the dad sphere is where you talk about politics and shit like that. So it's entirely yeah. possible that he didn't do it. But if we look at when he was 12, so he might not have known about the draft rights in yeah. the same state that he lived. But when he was 12 in 1868. And going to military school for those two years, he had to have learned about the Civil War. Well, yeah, it's a fucking military academy. And knowing the most recent history, the divisions of the country, etc. Shouldn't that that had to have been basic studies, right? Like, you know, just just in general. And yet he was so insulated from all of it. One, One kind of wonders. Mm-hmm. So he was, you were talking about between the ages of 14 and 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'd be interesting. I'd, I'd want to uh, look between at 12 and 14, 12 and 14. Yeah. Okay. 12 and 14. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in looking at the curriculum because sure. like private military military, I'm going to put in scare quotes uh, schools. I think it's entirely possible that he would have gotten a lot of drill he would have gotten a lot of you're going to you're going to learn how to march and you're going to learn how to you know behave in a soldierly way sure and the and the military trappings of discipline obedience all of that were a big part of his daily experience at that academy mm-hmm. but i don't know as a 12 to 14 year old like how much he would have been studying anything like military science I would imagine you know that I mean? had to have been in their history classes, though. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm you know, sure. I mean, I'm sure you're studying. In, you're going to yeah. be studying Caesar. You're going to be studying Napoleon. And you you literally I mean, your teachers are very likely veterans. Yeah. You know, so I, it, it's really hard for me to think that that shit was excluded. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, yeah. I guess I guess what I'm what I'm saying is I'm sure he learned about it, but how much of it would have been. Like, okay, we're going to talk about conservation of force and, uh, you know, logistics and this, that, and the other thing. Like, the, he, he, would have, he would have learned that it happened. And there certainly would have been, you know, it would have been taught in a way that was, you know, and, and Grant was, you know, a genius who pulled this off. Right. You know, et cetera, because it's close enough to the war that we're not running into lost cause stuff so much yet um but while he was in school yeah and so it, you know he he would have he would have been told that you know guys like sherman and grant were you know heroic leaders of of the mm-hmm. army that saved the union but how much of the nitty-gritty details of okay so sherman decided here's how i'm going to do this i'm just going to cut myself loose from any kind of baggage train we're all going to live off the land and make the south howl you get you get what i mean by the difference yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and I, I think I think those lessons would have been those lessons would have been being taught uh, at West Point. Sure. You know, for guys that were 19, 20, 21. Right, right. You know, but, but a kid's I, mili- a prep kids, school, you know, yeah. academy. I, yeah, would have. Yeah. 
So. I, I could see that. Uh, you know, having said that, though, I, I will say that there's, you know, your 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 kid got scared of uh, Red Panda getting big yeah. and angry. So you all turned it off. We grew up with the Black Cauldron and Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> the generation before us grew up yeah. with, I mean, your mom went to bed with Nightmares of the Reds. Yeah. You know, and. Oh, yeah, and, no, I know. You know, in the 1800s. Oh, he'd heard of Shiloh. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, you know, and, go to and, sleep or monsters will fucking kill you and, yeah. and you drink your mom's blood. Yeah. You know, yeah. so. No, but, I, I, yeah. I, I see what you're saying, but yeah. I'm, I'm just saying the, the emphasis of the emphasis of the lessons he would have gotten. Right. I don't think they would have gotten okay. an in-depth one semester course okay. on, you know, uh, here's how surgeons worked three yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, I don't think he could have escaped the reality of the Civil War. And yet, oh, no, he was so insulated from all of it on some levels that he wrote fantasy and he did stamp collecting. He bred chickens for fun. Like he was 30 yeah. and he had lived a life totally secularized away from the history of the world in which he lived. L. Frank Baum loved theater and was gullible. And he was essentially a money mark. Um, and when he realized that he'd been taken advantage of, he abandoned the, that theater group to be a clerk in a dry goods company in Syracuse that one of his brothers ran. And the thing is, he's able to bounce from shitty experience to shitty experience and never really took the bitterness with him. He didn't stay away from theater long, by the way. He found another inlet into acting. He wanted to be an actor. He was a dreamer. Um, his father built him a theater and opera house in 1880 in Richburg. Richburg, New York, the population of which today is 450. Um, of course, back then it was a petroleum boom town being mm -hmm. right near the border with Pennsylvania. And the population was approaching a whopping 374. <laughs> well, you know, it was a place crying out for some culture anyway. I mean, come yeah. on. So come 30 year old on. You gotta, Frank you gotta Baum. uplift the workers, right? You gotta give <laughs> yeah. them you gotta give them some kind of you know enrichment. Yeah. Absolutely. 30-year-old wow. Frank Baum, having lived through that time, is like this focused on acting and shit that he wrote plays in which he starred and acted in and gathered a theater company to the venue. And then he continued to write melodramas. He even wrote a prototypical musical in which the music actually sung pertained to the plot directly. This was called The Maid of Iran, A-R-R-A-N. He was, by all accounts, having a grand time of things. He really was an upper-class twit. Yeah, but like at no but time does dick. he... Right, exactly. At no time is he acting shittily. He's just living his dream badly like and that i love that i love that people that he had the luxury to not be good at this shit wow i i feel like and uh, <laughs> like, like i i wish i i'm trying to remember when jm barry was was writing because i feel mm -hmm. like uh you know the the guy who wrote the story of the boy who never grew up uh, mm -hmm. would have looked at Bob and been like, oh my God, I wrote you. This is my muse. Yeah. Like, um, 
now I got to look this up because I got to okay. figure out whether there's whether there's any any overlap here. Well, so in 1880, he's doing all that. In 1882, he marries Maud Gage at the end of 82. Okay. Now, Maud Gage is the daughter of one of my intellectual heroes. Her name okay. is Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Did you find out when your thing got done? Yeah, Barry was born in 1860 and lived until 1937. I mean, so they they were in fact they were contemporaneous in fact contemporaries. Yeah. Anyway, so okay, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Uh, very yeah. often, she's one of those women who's mentioned in a group of suffragists who attended this thing or that thing, but rarely is she ever given any real space in the history of women's suffrage. Some of it is because, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony they they absolutely are so iconic. Um, so you can tell the whole story through them and, yeah. you know, have people surrounding them in kind of a, a dull haze. Another yeah. reason, though, is that she was a lot more than just a suffragist. So she's hard to kind of pigeonhole. She was a vanguard of feminism. She fought for Native American rights. She fought for abolition. And specifically, she fought for uh, free thinking, which was anathema to most folks in the 1800s. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that. um sarcastically i mean it like literally free thinking is in short the belief that logic reason and empirical data should be what guides people to ideas instead of specifically tradition authority revelation and dogma yeah, so in the, not a popular viewpoint no in, in, yeah no. <laughs> no yeah she's someone who looks at religion and goes well let's let's do with all that miracle stuff and put that aside and then look at why it's still a good idea not to cover your neighbor's fine fine ass you know all right yeah so matilda jocelyn gage was the first woman to write about how women are erased from and excluded from the history of science and innovation um it is now called the matilda effect uh because of her no shit yeah she wrote a tract called woman the inventor uh in 1870 uh, and then it ended up in the first uh, American literary review journal ever published, and uh, which was the North American Review in 1883. Um, the best and easiest example to point to is, is Rosalind Franklin and the double helix structure of DNA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Watson and Creek, Crick get the credit because it's more fun to think of a bicycle ride with LSD than it is to think of her efforts and having discovered things and them looking through her notebook. Yeah, somebody somebody said, "What is it? What is it that uh, uh, Watson and Crick discovered?" Somebody said Rosalind's notes. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but in Gage's lifetime, uh, the clearest example would probably have been the French botanist uh, Jean Barre, uh, who's I think it's Barre, B A R E T. That. Yeah, sounds right. We can go with that. Um, her discoveries of different species were credited to Filbert Commerson, whose name I love. Who the fuck? He was okay. a really, really big time botanist and naturalist, actually, at the time. Okay. So, and she was on the same ship as him, and she discovered a whole shit ton of stuff, and it all gets credited to him. And Matilda Jocelyn Gage is pointing this out. Now, okay. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, to, to understand the woman whose daughter married L. Frank Baum. Okay, this okay. this upper class twit, um, his wife, her mother, this, this beatific yes. upper class twit, this this wonderful, this, this well meaning well meaning doofus, the Elwood Dowd of his time. Nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so his wife's mother is Matilda yeah. Jocelyn Gage. She grew up. Matilda Jocelyn Gage grew up 
with her own home being a stop along the way for the Underground Railroad. Uh, she even faced prison time over it because that fugitive slave, slave law of 1850. Um, by most accounts, she was far more radical than Stanton or Anthony. And remember, at the time, they were some of the most hated people in America. Um, oh, yeah. No, they yeah. were vilified as as huge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even figure out how to describe how vilified they were. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she made damn sure that in Fayetteville, New York, women knew that they were actually allowed to vote for school board candidates in 1870. So they were allowed municipal elections. This is why the Fabians uh, about 30 years later were like, oh, we've got a theory here. Let's let's just get on the municipal boards and we can make socialism happen that way. Mm -hmm. Some of this they're seeing what's going on over here. So women in 1870 were allowed to work or to vote for the school board. That was it. Nothing else, no higher office, no nothing like that. Just because, for that election. Because, you know, children. Exactly. It's part of that domestic sphere. Yeah. So she makes sure by writing letters to every woman in the area, informing them of such, and then by going and sitting at polling places to make sure that those rights were upheld so that men wouldn't be like, I don't care what this says. You don't get to vote today. She she was there. She's like, oh, sir, here's the law. Here's the thing. The constable's down there. You want me to get him or do you want to? She was doing that on election day. That was in 1870. Yeah. Um, she argued down police who claimed that women's assemblies were illegal. All right. Uh, she was the president of the NWSA, the National Women's Suffrage Association. Okay. This is after um, the suffrage associations split over the 15th Amendment. Right. right. Um, and she was the president of the national one. There was the National Women's Suffrage Association and the American Women's Suffrage Association. Uh, okay. The American one said we need to argue for all women's issues and also uh, we need to um, continue to argue for black equality. The national said um, no, and I might be mixing them up. And then the national said uh, we're a suffrage only organization and God damn it. You were supposed to give us the vote. Why okay. are you giving it to black men? Okay. Um and I might have, I think I flipped them around, but okay. um, one of them has a designated hitter rule. The other one doesn't. Um, nice. But she actually defended Susan B. Anthony by writing uh, publicly a very compelling legal argument as to why Susan B. Anthony had the right to vote in New York in 1872. Um, I don't know if you know about this story. Susan B. Anthony actually was arrested in 1872 for voting in the presidential election. Right. She claimed yeah. that the 14th Amendment gave her the right to vote as she is a citizen and therefore taking away her right would require due process. She did not have that. Therefore, she gets to vote. And the guy, the poor guy at the polling place, is like, I don't know what to fucking do. What so they, they arrested yeah. her. There was a trial and the judge found her guilty. And Ulysses S. Grant stepped in. He's like, D just just find her a hundred dollars. Call it good. Don't don't don't, collecting don't, it. don't push don't this fuck for fuck's sake, don't, please. Yeah, don't. yeah, I don't. And Susan B. Anthony was like, I can't handle the heat on this. Please right. don't. And the yeah. irony is, of course, that um, she voted for Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. you know, and and uh, yeah, Grant Grant was already dealing with enough heat for his his stance on uh, civil rights for for Black Americans, right? At the time, and it's like, I I can't I, I like. America will only do one thing at a time. We we can't we, we really can't, can't push this like right yeah 
Yeah. It, it's, yeah. It's, there's this whole, like, you have to, you have to do it piecemeal. It's, it's everything, ridiculous. everything has to be incremental. Yeah. And not yeah. only incremental, but modular. Yeah. Um, you, you yeah. can have black men getting the right to vote, but no one else. Now yeah. we can give white women the right to vote, but no one else. Yeah. Okay. Now Asians can be citizens, but no one else, you know, and it just piece by piece by piece. Yeah. So, but yeah, she wrote a lot of very compelling legal arguments as to why Anthony had the right to vote in 1872. Uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage refused the argument from morality when people tried to claim that women's inherent God-given morality was the reason that they should vote. She's like, no, that is not why, because the second you argue that, you can start creating divisions between men and women in other ways. Yeah. Uh, she said that women had the right to vote because it's simply a natural fucking right now stop coming up with qualifiers. Now this also helped oh, her continue enough. the support for black people. And this somewhat distances her from the Women Christians Temperance Union because she's like, I don't give a shit what you think about our morality. We're arguing for things that are right because they are right. Um, it also distanced her from white feminists at the time who argued from class against black people getting the right to vote over white women. Um, you know, yeah. basically, you know, it, it, and it's a very unfortunate chapter in history, but Susan B. Anthony and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, especially her, mm -hmm. um, she argued uh, vociferously with or, or against Frederick Douglass. They did this at a convention and mm -hmm. they had it out over, you know, why she thought that he shouldn't get the right to vote if if that meant that she didn't get it. And I think, honestly, she missed the forest for the trees, but. Anyway, Matilda Jocelyn Gage also argued in favor of a woman's autonomy. Um, now, what was interesting was that she actually argued against abortion because that was a way of letting men off the hook for impregnating women. An interesting take. It's, you know, you can kind of see how she gets from here to there. Um, you know, with our present eyes, yeah. we certainly would say, hey, you missed a few things here. But, um, you know, also keep in mind what abortion was back then compared to now. Like, True. it's not until yes. 1889 that you have a better than 50-50 shot of living by seeing a doctor. Yeah. So, so in short, she was pretty rad. Um, a few, few things here yeah. and there that I disagreed with her on, but like, she did it from a hella smart spot. Anyway. Matilda Jocelyn Gage gave birth to Maud last, um, and Maud Gage was the youngest by about 10 years. Uh, Maud Gage attended a boys high school, um, and after that, Gage attended the same college prep school that Baum attended, although a few years after him. Um, I actually didn't write down when Maud Gage was born. I think she's his, his younger by about six years. Okay. Anyway, in 1880, Maud Gage goes to Cornell. Uh, which had been open to women since 1870. Okay. So Cornell is a, a university in New York. Um, and Cornell had been housing women since 1872. Now, Maud's intent was to become the first woman graduate from college in her family. But the social structures of the Cornell University were such that she felt a tremendous amount of social pressure because uh, much of it was due to the fact that the men in the university were uh, late 19th century fuckboys who didn't like that, that her mom was such a staunch and open feminist. Okay. So the result is um, 
they're all making fun of her because they don't like that her mom is speaking out against the patriarchal system that they're benefiting from. Oh, hey, Ivy League white boys. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, 19th century fuckboys. Uh, so yeah, um, it also didn't help from a social pressure perspective, at least, that she was actually kind of a free spirit herself. You know, we, we talk about Alice Roosevelt, right? Um, Maud was yeah. kind of the proto of that. Not nearly to the extent... Um, but along the same vein, okay. uh, she danced not according to the norms at the time, but, uh, that, alo- that enough was, a, a, enough to get her called lively. Um, right. Uh, which is a term that could be complimentary, but it also could, uh, be a stand in for much more derogatory terms. Um, and either way it marked her as the target for gossip. Uh, additionally, the fact that women were so few at Cornell in 1800 or in 1880, I think it was there were 19 out of 133 freshmen were women. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. So a little over 10 percent, uh, about 15 percent. Um, so that also would make it so that it was easy to normalize bullying. Um, if a girl was late to class, for instance, all the boys would clap at her as she took her seat. If a girl stood out as intelligent and not wilting, she'd be nominated for the class marshal, uh, which was essentially the social director for the class. And that position, they would they would nominate her for it so that they could gossip about her. Maud was nominated just for that position. Um, she took all that teasing to heart. It hurt her clearly. Um, and keep in mind, her mom had not gotten to go to college and complete college. So her mom very much wanted Maud to finish as well. Um, the nasty rumors hurt Maud's feelings. And again, it was partly due to the fact that some of the boys saw feminism as a needless thing and others saw it as a sign of the end times. And the ones who supported it didn't stand up much against the other two groups. Uh, so it was also partly due to the fact that her mother is Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And I found this limerick about her that was included in the school's humor column of a school's newspaper. Like people are really going in hard against her uh, on the paint. And it says there is a gay, gay maiden at Sage. Sage is the name of the uh, residence hall who flies into a terrible rage. If one says in a crowd in a tone a bit too loud, Matilda, may I ask your age? So they're calling her by her mom's name. So like I said, yeah. Yeah. So this, yeah. So this is the shit that Maud is growing up in, right? So she is, she is around dickheads. Um, The award for meaning well, but missing the whole point of why we are here goes to the Cornell Sun editorial board, uh, which is the newspaper's editorial board, all male, of course. Uh, which uh, they chastised these efforts um, by saying, quote, there's not the slightest reason to hold up the lady to hold the ladies up to ridicule. They have neither sought nor do they aspire to class politics, but have left politics to the more experienced sex. So leave those girls alone. Right. You know, headbutting it to make it run. Um, the whole thing spoiled her on Cornell boys at the very least. And uh, the emotional scarring may have weakened her resolve to become a lawyer or a doctor from Cornell. Um, her roommate was a sophomore. So in order to stay there and live on the cheap, you take a roommate. Her roommate was one year above yeah. her, a girl named Josie Baum. Uh. Josie Baum was a cousin of L Frank Baum. 
And she invited Maude to come with her one evening to her other cousin's house, Harriet Baum Neal, whose husband was William Neal. Um, Harriet was Frank's sister. Okay. Josie's mom, Frank's aunt, walked with Maude holding her hand at a Christmas party in 1881. Uh, and just to touch down here, this is Christmas 1881. James Garfield had been assassinated six to three months earlier. And I say six to three months earlier because it took three months of dying. Um, yeah, uh, it was, yeah. Yeah. That was <laughs> one of the, one of the gruesomest uh, chapters in, in American political history. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Like just like, I, I kind of want to do an episode comparing presidential deaths, but that's not really what we do. Um, it's not really pop culture. <laughs> like, in any way it's yeah. not you know it's yeah. just like really interesting history yeah. um but uh yeah james garfield had been assassinated that year his vice president was from new york and became president and none of this seemed to matter to these people okay they're just kind of above it all and that's that's the thing i keep coming back to like they are not tied to the history that they're living through at the time that i could find Anyway, Aunt Josephine uh, brought Maud to meet Frank specifically, and the sweetest little exchange occurred. She said, quote, this, is, this comes from uh, memoirs later. This is my nephew, Frank. Frank, I want you to know Maud Gage. I'm sure you will love her. Consider yourself loved, Miss Gage, says Frank. Thank you, Mr. Baum. That's a promise. Please see that you live up to it, said Maud. What kind of meet-cute, like, holy crap right but that's that's they're just a couple of cinnamon rolls like right it's just so sweet like at the same time the fucking haymarket affair is far four years from now <laughs> like it's a yeah. bad time yeah. you know custer's yeah. last stand wasn't too long earlier you know the, the kkk is burning through the oh, south oh yeah like yeah there's all kinds of horrible shit happening in new yeah. york um, but yeah, these these little wow. like yeah, yeah, saccharine snow globe in their in their <laughs> tiny little tiny little <laughs> snow globe bubble. Yeah, yeah, and that's not even where their love story starts either. Um, one of the reasons that Maud had been bullied was because she rather did enjoy the company of men. Um, and that of course gets around quickly at Cornell. Uh, she had several. Well, other... There are only nineteen women, right? You know, in the freshman class. Yeah. I, I had a friend Everybody's gonna want to know who's a goer. Eh? I, yeah. <laughs> I, I had a friend who uh, she went to Mizzou and there was a boys engineering college up the road. I think there could be women that went to it by then, but they would come down for a social week. And there was a saying in Mizzou that when the boys from that uh, engineering college came down engineering school. Yeah. When they would come down, yeah. the saying was, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I really do think going to Sac State and, and having been married at the time and then uh, dating, you know, my second wife at the time, um, I really do think that uh, I missed out on so much college experience that everybody else has actually had. Um, well, yes and no yeah i mean i was single right when i was an undergrad but, but you had the dorm experience too 
I did have the dorm experience. Right. See, um, so the, I mean, there's like different aspects that I missed all of them, and everybody okay. had at least one of them. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like, yeah. you know, not all of us do a lot of dating in college. No, no, no. Like, um, it, you did, know, the other I fun thing, almost is, none. But that yeah. I've noticed as well about my college experience compared to others. I did everything the rightest way in the wrongest way. Like I had the highest GPA in the history uh, department. Like yeah. I graduated summa cum laude with the highest GPA out of there. Yeah. I didn't know what a Dean's list was. I didn't know what an honor society was. I didn't know what any of that shit was. So I wasn't a part of any of the things that would have heaped honors and given oh. me opportunities. I didn't know that there was a historical okay. journal that I could have been writing for. Like, I didn't know any of this shit. Yeah. It just completely, you know, missed me. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, I know people now who've gone through all that. Proletariat to it. Uh, I'm trying to figure out. How, I, honestly, how to characterize that. my, like, my, dude. my head was down doing my studies, doing my thing, learning my stuff and then going home. So. All right. Fair. So, yeah, their love story doesn't start there. Um, so, uh, like I said, uh, she had several other suitors. Uh, not all were seeking marriage, but they were certainly orbiting around her. Um, Frank set his sights on her, but he was set one of several who had. Um, and so she remained friends with him for a long time, uh, during which Frank pursued her along with his love of theater. Um, in May of 1882, she came to Syracuse to see his play. And actually, the place she came to see was the Maid of Iran, uh, which is that proto-musical that I talked about. Now, A-R-R-A-N. Um, mm. I forget what it was based on. It was based on some other story, um, okay. a, a famous story at the time, too. But from then on, uh, Frank made use of his dad's horse and buggy business to take frequent trips to visit her at her family home in Fayetteville. So, okay. again... I'm just going to borrow dad's horse and buggy. Cool, dad. Yeah, no problem, son. You know, just well, yeah. And yeah, yeah. it's just, you know, shit that he could do. He had okay. literal mobility. By the um, way. Yeah. <clears throat> made of Iran. Yes. An idyllic Irish drama written for the people, irrespective of caste or nationality. That's the full title, which you yeah. have. Um, uh, based on the novel, A Princess of Thule by That's William what it was. Black. That's what it was. It was described as... I love the 1800s described as I quote a play to ensnare all hearts and leave an impress of beauty and nobility within the sordid mind of man. Yes. So he, he liked it anyway. So he's using his dad's horse and buggy business to take trips to visit her at her family home in the fall of 1882. He proposes to her and the two were wed in November of 1882. And then their honeymoon was that they went on tour with the Maid of Iran players, during which they were not in Richburg. Um, they were going all throughout like the Midwest circuit because the newly okay. created uh, railroad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, the opera house burnt down <laughs> in in Richburg. And I think it burnt down doing a play that he'd written right. called Match. Like, it's like, just like, are you goddamn kidding me? Like, it's okay. It's fun. No, you know what? Yeah. I I figured I just no, I figured something out. I huh. like you you've been you've been saying all of these things about about all of this shit that happened in his life and mm -hmm. and I just I figured out um bomb is garp. Ooh. 
Baum is is Garp, the world according to Garp. Like, You're right. He's a writer who meets the yeah, wow. I gotta go find that movie. That's like, my favorite like, one of Robin Williams. We, we gotta, By the way, a movie that a five-year-old shouldn't be watching. I watched it at five. <laughs> that yeah, that yeah. I'm unsurprised. Yeah. yeah. Um <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah. Uh, we'll be safe here. I love I love that scene. I have talked about that scene <laughs> so many times to so many people. I'm like, I'm pre-disastered. <laughs> it's only up from here, baby. Yeah. Uh, so. Hank, you know, um, I, I'm I mean, I'm listening to all this shit that happens to him. And and I yeah. can't imagine that that bomb's response coming back, you know, and, and finding out, oh yeah, the opera house burned down would be anything other than, oh, all right onward and upward like yeah. you know <laughs> yeah yeah wow all right so talk about a charmed life yeah you know in a weird strange way yeah john irving kind of way but yeah okay so all right so when she marries frank it's also its own cute little story um her mom matilda objected vehemently um, Matilda had also wanted to be a doctor or lawyer and never got to be one. So Maud's acceptance of Frank's proposal was the death of Matilda's own dream through Maud, because um, if you got married back then, you weren't you allowed to attend college. Uh, Fucking stupid. Yeah, well, yeah, desperately stupid, but it's yeah. the 1880s. And you're giving up a chance to be a doctor or a lawyer to marry. Look at him out there. He's picking <laughs> flowers. He's a dreamer. He's he's a man of means, but no practical ambition. You could do better. You should do better. You should get these. Oh my God. What are you doing? Like at it at his very core, according to Matilda, Frank was basically just a traveling actor of minimal capability to support a family. And she's like, you know, I I, I will not have my daughter marrying such a man. And I loved Maud's response to her mom. Her response was, all right, see ya. Nice. And and the sources that I found have the following quotes. Matilda refused to, quote, have my daughter be a darn fool and marry an actor. Maud fired back with, quote, all right, mother, if you feel that way about it, goodbye. Matilda, of course, is stunned by this and asks what that means. She says, well, I'm going to marry Frank. So naturally, you don't want a darn fool around the house. So she was leaving. (laughs) At this point, Matilda laughed, realizing that she'd raised her daughter to do this exact fucking thing. Make her own decisions and not based on authority or tradition, but on volition. My favorite part of this was that in this house, there were two parlors, the front parlor and the back parlor. They're in the back parlor. Frank is in the front parlor while this discussion is going on. And later he said that he couldn't help but overhear what was happening (laughs) in the back parlor. So there was some fiery ass yelling going on. In that same front parlor, they were both wed in November. That's, That's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, they didn't do the love, honor, obey part of the vows uh, for the woman's part. Uh, Both were held to the exact same vows, which this was true for Elizabeth Cady Stanton as well. Oh, well, yeah. So feminists in the 1800s would do this. Now, by all accounts, she, Maud, was every bit her mother's daughter. They didn't abide by the standard gender norms. He, 
Frank was charming, yielding, and acquiescing. She was assertive, decisive, and maybe a bit too severe. They were both immensely passionate about each other. And <laughs> there's this great story, and I, I truncated it like crazy. Um, but essentially, he bought a Bismarck donut, and she's like, why, why would you spend money on that? I could have made that. He's like, oh, but I like them from over here, as he's got a mouthful. And so she basically, he bought like a dozen of them, but he only ate two. And so she kept them in the cabinet and would force him to eat them for breakfast since he's not going to eat her breakfast. And this goes on for like a fucking week. So they're moldy and stale. And so he takes them out and he buries them in the backyard. She exhumes them and forces him to eat them for dinner. (laughs) It's, uh, and and I mean, it really kind of puts her uh, a bit on the this is why we divorce side of things. But he also wasn't about to leave this woman over such an incident. And after that, he'd learned his lesson. Yeah. Yeah, dude. And she was also much better with money than he was. And I think that absolutely is how they were raised. Well, it's how they were raised and and. You know, I just, I have this image of, I, well, yeah, I mean, this, this is such a, this is such a vivid relationship I'm picturing mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Of, of, I mean, you know, he is, he is a himbo. Like he's yeah. just, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Yeah, no, of course, babe. Yeah, obviously. Right. Like, I you mean, know. her dad's money put her through college and she was aware of every penny of it. Yeah. His dad gave him a horse and buggy to go see a girl. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> yeah. So, and the thing is, she loved, loved being loved by him and loved following him. And there's still that, you know, that cult of domesticity this is what a wife does. But like, there's also within the marriage, there were a lot looser gender norms for the two of them. Um, they stopped touring through the Midwest with his acting troupe when she got pregnant. He hired another actor to come out and continue it. I don't know if he ever made money on this thing, by the way, but for the love of the art and who cares, right? Um, but yeah. she wanted to settle down yeah. before well, their child was money. born. What's that? Duck you money. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she wanted to settle down before their child was born. They ended up in Syracuse. Um, and a bit after that, they ended up bouncing around again, living with Maud's mom for a little bit. Uh, when they'd actually moved into another home again, after her father's death, their second son was born. Um, and this actually laid Maud up with uh, peritonitis for a few months, which kills most people back then, didn't yeah. kill her. Um, Frank and Maud lived near his sisters at this point, who tended to her. And I mean, we're talking, this is the days before antibiotics. So yeah, mostly just laying there with a drainage tube in her um, while he's out selling axle grease that his older brother had invented. So he is, you know, getting out there and making money. Well, he's, you know, he's doing what he needs to do in order to try to provide for his, for his wife, for his exactly. ill wife and his kids, you know? Right. So, I mean, he's, he's a stand-up guy. He's yes. just a twit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's not, <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not a dick. Again, he's, he's not just, a dick. L. Yeah. Frank Baum, not a dick. Not a dick. Yeah. yeah. Now, after Maud recovered, she wanted to be near her brother and sisters, all of whom lived in Aberdeen, South Dakota. So they moved to Aberdeen, South Dakota. Frank was down. He's like, all right, I'll start a dry goods business, I guess. I used to do books for those kinds of people. Um, 
and then he named it something that was such a L. Frank Baum name. It's called Baum's Bazaar. Well, yeah, because of exactly, course, you know, because of the slipshod Persian bazaar manner with which he d- conducted his affairs. What well, else could he name it, right? And of you course, know. it went out of business in the most L. Frank Baum kind of way. He extended too much credit to his customers, and it collapsed about a month after his third son was born because he was too nice to his customers. He was he was too much of a nice guy. Yeah. yeah. No. Their fourth son oh my was born God. a year and a half after that. So they had four kids. So, you now, know, yeah. I identify way too much with him at this point in this whole story because I'm like, yeah, that's how I'd fuck up too. Yeah. That's totally what I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, babe, he's having a hard time. Right. You know, he says he'll be able to pay me next month. We like, can handle it. He can yeah. handle it. We owe rent next week. I'll talk Ed. to the guy. It'll be like, okay. I'll, 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 I'll figure yeah. it out. It'll be yeah. okay. Yeah. You know. Don't worry. You're pregnant. Yeah. You. It's I don't want like, you to stress out. I've got this, babe. I've I got, got this. I got this, yeah. I got this handled. Yeah. Honey, how come you're home so often? Well, so, uh, uh, about <laughs> the credit I extended. Yeah. 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 So now you have a dreamer who never really had to work for much, who was living his dreams, married to an ambitious person who had to work for everything she ever had. And who'd given up her dreams to marry this man with four children to feed and not much in the way of prospects. They moved to Chicago and she became the breadwinner while he became a reporter. Continuing with the writing, Maud taught embroidery um, and she had about two dozen reliable students paying tuition, which kept the entire family comfortable and fed enough. Pretty cool. Yeah. Now, Matilda would visit Maud very frequently, which was good because often Frank was traveling for work. He was also writing children's books at this time, um, capitalizing on a relatively new market. And this kind of gets back to your thing about like, well, kid people did like their kids. It was only fairly recently that kids books were a fucking thing. Well, yeah, because because literacy during <laughs> well, one, yeah, public education, literacy being a thing, but also. Mm-hmm. The rapid expansion of the bourgeois class in American society after the Civil War, the industrial expansion that took place during the war Mm -hmm. meant that there was a whole new class of middle management, you know, middle class uh, white collar families. Mm hmm who not only were their kids getting educated in public schools to the extent that they could be readers, but there was uh, this drive for those people to provide for their kids, everything that they Mm -hmm. hadn't had when they were children. This is also the same time or roughly the same time during which we see Christmas becoming a huge big deal commercially. Yes. And department stores with storefronts. And, and that's going to come in pretty big with Frank Baum. Oh, in a huge way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so we have this cult of childhood mm-hmm. within this burgeoning middle class. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there there is all of a sudden a market for children's books. Not only books for children to read, but books for you to read to your children. Right. Because in order, because this new 
middle management, white collar, you know, clerk kind of class that's, right. that's arisen. You want your children to be literate. You want your children to be fluent Mm-hmm. in the written word and mm-hmm. so you want them reading you want to give them books books are books are a sign of status books are a sign of middle class virtue yeah absolutely so absolutely yeah. and you start to have libraries being built by the robber barons yes <laughs> so you got to stock them with something yeah and the idea that like well if we kept the kids off the street that's less crime like there's all these things that are tied yeah, it's a whole bunch time. a whole bunch of factors all at once yeah so he publishes his first book in 1897 uh, after they'd been married for 15 years he 15 years of marriage okay so he's in his 40s at the very least yeah because he was born in 1854 so yeah he's in his his 43 yeah, yeah. So again, he's still more successful than I, because uh, I'm 44. Uh, but um, but yeah, uh, they've been married for 15 years, and he finally publishes his first book. The thing that he's known for, 15 yeah. years into their marriage. Yeah. Okay. His youngest son is about five years old. In 1900, he publishes Father Goose, which was his first real success financially. And at this point, the family could breathe easier based on his income too. No idiot. He transferred all financial literary rights to Maud. And then she turned around and paid him a thousand dollars for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Again, himbo. Yes. Like, yes, I know. I know. I know who knows how to handle money. Right. I, I grew up again. I grew up. You know, it just slips through my fingers. Honey. I don't know. I, I Here, can't. I can't keep it. any control yeah. on it. But I'm smart enough. I, I right. do have well, and humble I, I have, enough. I, I have enough. Yeah, humble enough, and I have a high enough wisdom score. <laughs> yeah, whatever my int is, I do have enough of a wisdom score to go. I'm gonna fuck this up, like in a big way. Here, <laughs> exactly. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> you, you're the responsible one. I know I'm gonna screw this up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and at this point, you have four boys living in a Chicago home with a dad who is very tender and a mom who is very severe. And like, there are stories that I read about her disciplining her sons for the abuses of a cat. Um, like, she dangled a kid outside of their second story um, because her son had thrown the the cat off the balcony. She's like, you fucking like that? You like that, you little shit? You, you know, and she's like, and he's screaming and the neighbors are hearing his screams. And she's like, you going to do this wow. shit again? I didn't think so. And then she pulls him back in. Another kid she threw into a barrel because they'd thrown a cat into the barrel. Basically, whatever they did to the cat, she did a version of that to the kid. It was like, you will goddamn learn. Um, wow. And I see why. And at the same time, that's mm, yeah, fine. That's pretty way. extreme. But yeah. Now, the interesting thing is um, she would tell Frank that he needed to spank his kids and he would feel so hurt having spanked his kids. Like, I love this man so much. (laughs) There's this wonderful quote between the two of them. He said, quote, if I had my way, I would always have a young child in the house. And she responded with, if I had my way, I wouldn't. (laughs) It's because he's fun dad. 
she's doing a lot of the discipline shit. Yeah. So Frank frequently told his boys stories before bed, making them up as he went along. He'd write when he would go back when they would go to bed, he would go to writing and she'd work on embroidery in the same room. And I love this about them because his artistry was drifty, uncertain, and just kind of flowed from him. Her artistry, because it is artistry, was precise, literally hemmed in and formulaic as fuck. And yet they shared this space doing exactly that thing together. And like in my studies or my research, I really fell in love with these two, despite their vast differences, because of what I found about their relationship. Mm -hmm. So one night in 1900, Frank is telling a story to his children about a cyclone that threw a young boy into a magical realm. His son asked what the magical realm was called, and he did like a lot of dads do. He looked quickly through the room for inspiration, and he found it on a filing cabinet. The bottom drawer marked O through Z. Oz. Bullshit. Really? That's one of the stories. Okay, that's awesome. That's that's Yeah. That's there pretty are, cool. There are a lot of other versions that come out after, but this is what he said. So I'm going to go with what he said. Um, now, when they went to bed, Maud encouraged him to continue the story. Uh, and this was the genesis of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. It was published in May of 1900. In 1901, the publishing company finished printing the first edition. There were 10,000 of them, and they sold out. And by October of 1901, a second edition was printed, this time 15,000 copies. That also sold out. Holy crap. Yeah. Now, I'm going to stop it there because that is a great place to stop. Uh, and I don't want to cut into some really interesting things yeah. uh, that start to become themes. Uh, so I, you know, you, you've said it from the from the jump. He's a himbo. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's much yeah. else to glean from that. But like the man who wrote uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, this is the world that he lived in. And by the way, in 1901, by October of 1901, it had sold out, right? Yeah. Isn't that right around the same time that McKinley gets shot and killed in Buffalo, New York? Yeah. Now, he's living in Chicago at the time, so he's yeah. further removed from it. But again, there's these incredible changes happening. There's these, these horrific violences happening. Yeah. And he's living in this world of just like cyclone through the boy. It's yeah. uh, called um, Oz, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, just, yeah. Like it, it's a, a charmed twit who's not a dick. Yeah. So it just, just the, the sweetness mm -hmm. of the man mm -hmm. is, is amazing. Yeah. And, and I want somebody to make a movie about their relationship that would be cool. Like take all of my goddamn money. <laughs> like I would, I would buy tickets for this just because I, I want to see that courtship. I, I want right. to watch, you know, I, I want to watch, you know, her being the, the, you know, go get him hard charger mm -hmm. and, and him and him being the go get him, babe, do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, oh, hey, I've had this windfall. I'm handing it all to you because I know I'm a fuck it up. 
<laughs> you know, I remember the story of the biscuits. <laughs> you know, um, and there was something else kind of profound. I would just love to mind. hear the conversation of them walking through his aunt's garden and him talking about hamburgers and her like just not not like 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 two laps around the garden because she's trying to understand how a fucking hamburger could be a chicken <laughs> like i would just i would love that it's just a little you know a little aside into their story it's just yeah. it's it's apocryphal but it's based on a lot of like hmm you know like just yeah yeah i again take my money yeah like, or just I, like I hey buy tickets to that film while like we're done. while we're traveling to nebraska with you know with the uh maiden of aaron what show are you having back at the uh, opera house oh it's a little thing i wrote called match and then you just cut to the whole fucking thing burning down <laughs> and then back to them you know <laughs> it's just these little moments you know meanwhile in new york state <laughs> Yeah. And it just, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a, a two second cut and that's yeah. all that's said about yeah. it. Yeah. You know, like you see the sign falling as the yeah. fires burning around it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like I, what comes into the foreground is the burning embers of the playbill and it says match on it as it burns. Oh, nice. You yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. I just, I would, I would absolutely you, love the story get to direct it. Um, but oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you want it to be funny and cute or do you want it to be? I picture it being funny romantic. and unbearably twee. And I'm trying to think of who. Taika Waititi. Oh, no. Taika, it wouldn't be twee. It'd no? just be okay. fall out of your chair funny with okay. Waititi. I'm trying. To... Oh, my God. Moonlight, Moonlight Paradise, Moonlight something. I'm trying to think. Who... Wes Anderson. I'm thinking of okay. a Wes Anderson film, you know, okay. highly, highly stylized sure. and, and just enough off kilter to sure. be. Sure. Like, yeah. But, I was going to say, cause I mean, the, the obvious go-to would be, um, Oh, what's his name? Uh, the guy that directed uh, Beetlejuice. Oh yeah. Uh, Tim Burton. Yeah. Tim Burton could do it. I mean, he's very stylized. I'm He's already done costuming shit like that. from Yeah. Wonka. And, but yeah, there, there'd you know. be, everybody'd have bags under their eyes and it'd be kind of spooky but yeah i can totally right. see that too but if he if he could like do a outdoors in the sunshine version of it yeah i mean yeah. he did he did um he did edward scissorhands and most yeah. people were not made up that way that's true but, um, but yeah i mean have tim burton yeah. or like you said wes anderson do yeah. it um and absolutely she'd be amy adams um, oh, because Amy Adams could absolutely could play both sides of that. The hell out of that. Yes. Yeah. And then, I mean, um, who, wh oh, um, oh, John C. Riley. Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, I could totally see that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like he might be a little old for it. Uh, he might be. But, yeah. but, um, Spider Man, newest Spider Man. Oh, no, no. I, I he'd be too young. You no. Know? He'd be too Jim, young. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm thinking oh, James uh, Franco, maybe. Oh, I, I want to punch that man in the nose. There's no way I would ever. Want oh, okay. To. All right. All right. I'm saying Ross Marquand. Okay. I think I he, could, I mean, okay. he's got great voice chops to begin yeah. with. I okay. think he could really, 
play he the could, tenderness. He could, he could do that. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like Will Ferrell about 10 years ago would have been my choice. Oh, would have been. Oh my God. Yeah. Right? No, Will Ferrell, that, that man child. Yes. You know, total innocence kind of, kind of out like, yeah, no, he'd have been perfect. Yeah. Who directed big fish? I don't know if that was Burton or not. Cause you okay. know, I thought of big fish too. Yeah. As, as a, uh, is kind of an influence tim burton oh okay yeah see he can do outdoors and yeah not he have can everybody be actually really yeah and out. and by the way you and mcgregor in that movie i mean i mean you and mcgregor fanboy anyway but yeah that was that was absolutely fucking amazing that was, he could you know what you mcgregor could conceivably he might be a little old now but yeah, yeah i i still well, yeah, most I of the could, stories starts with with him being like i mean yeah okay the younger part of his life it's a you, little harder to do yeah but the most Later of the on. story yeah of, like since he started writing oz that's yeah. him that's ewan mcgregor yeah that's, totally yeah so you know the interesting thing is i i i find myself you know mm-hmm. listening to the love story between uh you know bomb mm-hmm. and maude i i think of the love story between uh, Mr. And Mrs. Tolkien. I was wondering if you were going to, yeah. you know, and, and there is, there is a very interesting set of like resonances. I don't want to say parallels because there, there are some, there are some notable differences, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Tolkien suffered a significant amount of hardship in his childhood, right. you know, having been orphaned and, and everything that he had to deal with. Sure. But the kind of class issues that were involved in in Tolkien's upbringing and and Baum being, you know, an upper class twit in in the American sense, mm-hmm. and the the love story element mm-hmm. is is a really strong parallel. Um, and, and there's, there's kind of a mirroring because of course, in Tolkien's case, his adoptive father was the one who said, you're not, you, you are not to be consorting with this young woman, you know, you've you've got to finish your studies. You got to be above this age, whatever, whatever. And, you know, she waited for him and all of that. Whereas with bomb, it was, you know, his eventual mother-in-law, by the way, living in the house with that mother-in-law would be comedy gold Uh, but you know the thing is to begin with yes and no though because once her daughter was was like no i'm doing this mom came around a hundred percent and even invited some of the most incredible luminaries of the 1800s feminist circles to the fucking wedding like they said that actually the 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 orchestra, not orchestra, the, the quartet that played the music yeah. musicians had to play upstairs because there wasn't enough room in the parlor because of how many people mom had invited. Oh, wow. She was all in once her daughter was like, uh-uh. And she realized, oh, you you are the monster I've created. Okay, but she was him. proud of it. Yeah. Well, well, however, that doesn't necessarily mean, like she was proud of her daughter for making her own decision. That doesn't necessarily mean that she didn't look at Frank and be like, my daughter loves you, but God almighty, you know, you might be projecting a little Ed. Uh, well, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe yeah. I am, but you know, still, yeah, I, I, you know, 
the, the I don't storytelling know. I, license yeah. there is, sure. is too good to pass up like sure well and know. and matilda's husband uh was henry gage and frank had a tremendous admiration for him well yeah there's a lot i left out like yeah. just because it was fascinating sure. to me i'm like this doesn't really pertain to the that's the book yeah that we're well talking yeah about. the story we're trying to tell yeah yeah but, but like uh henry gage or yeah henry gage i mean very very important fellow um you know in abolition circles and stuff oh like, yeah well yeah yeah so i just the the pedigree of amazing and i i can imagine there would be a conversation between you know matilda and her husband and her yeah. just like i can't believe she did blah blah he says did you support her yes then what are you complaining about yeah you're right honey um and then from then on they both 100 percent adore yeah. this dreamer that married their daughter yeah yeah because yeah. you know clearly he was besotted with her yes so like how I mean, he was not borrowing a buggy to go down point. to visit her all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, God. How, i want to not like you right like there's a part of me that really wants to be like oh my god you're insufferable this is what I said in the beginning. I really want to not like this, but at the same time, like, like how did he not understand what was going on in the world and be absorbed by it? And at the same time, how did he not understand what was going on in the world and be not be absorbed by it? Yeah, how, that how did he? Wonderful. I'd love to be able to pull that off, right? Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, well, you know, so... obviously, I'm I'm going to recommend uh, the wonderful world of the Wizard of Oz or the wonderful Wizard of Oz. I'm going to recommend that. Yeah. I'm not going to recommend the movie this time. I'll recommend the movie when I start talking about the movie, because I will. Um, But I'm going to recommend the book, um, uh, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. It's the first of the series. We're going to get into the publication histories and stuff like that. But but reading that one, that's the original. It's the OG. Go read that. That's a good companion piece to this podcast. Okay. So what are you going to what are you going to recommend for folks? Um, well, it's kind of contemporary with all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to very strongly recommend the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Mm, okay. Um, oh, yeah. You recommended that last week, too. I, well, I'm, or I no, you were reading, reading last week. it. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to recommend it now. Um, partly kind of as a companion piece mm-hmm. uh, to, to Mom, simply because they're roughly contemporary. The, the mm-hmm. memoirs are several years before uh uh the wizard of oz it's when bombs writing about hamburgers that are yeah yeah uh but um the the recollections that grant has are very lucid and very well described Mm. and um his his prose is remarkably uh it, 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 it's like if Hemingway was writing a century before Hemingway wrote, like, you know, Hemingway mm. was incredibly spare and, right. and, and everything Hemingway writes is, is these very short sentences that are very unequivocal because, you know, he'd been a journalist and you had to pare everything down. Grant sounds like somebody who's writing in the, in the 1800s. And so mm-hmm. there's a certain level of verbosity that we just don't do in the modern world. Right but there is a directness like he almost never uses the passive voice Mm. and and it's not like you can tell he was working really hard to avoid it it's just that's not the way he thought 
if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's really compelling reading. And of course he's an amazing American who, who uh, I think got maligned uh, unfairly by a lot of uh, historians who had uh, <laughs> axe Confederate apologist axes to grind. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, I uh, highly recommend it as an artifact of, of the time and a companion piece. Okay. So cool. Uh, let's see. Where can folks find you? I can be found on the Tiki Talk at Mr. Underscore Blaylock. I am on Twitter as E.H. Blaylock. Uh, we collectively can be found on Twitter at uh, Geek History of Time. Uh, we can be found on the internet at www.geekhistorytime.com. Mm-hmm. And um, if you are listening to this, which obviously you are, then you have found us either on the Apple podcast app or on Stitcher. In either case, wherever it is that you found us, please uh, subscribe. Please give us the five-star review that you know we deserve for the work we put in here. Um, And where can you be found? Uh, Let's see. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Harmony. Uh, TikTok at Duh Harmony One, two H's in the middle for both of those. Uh, let's see. I'm not sure when this one's coming out, so you may have already missed the August 5th, and yeah, you probably missed the August 5th show, but the September 8th show should still be in your radar. Uh, come see it at Luna's in Sacramento. Uh, bring ten dollars and proof of vaccination uh, because it will be the first time that Justine Lopez will be joining our crew. And that will be amazing. So come check that out. Yeah, I think that's about it. So for A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.